The UK loves chocolate. Valentine's Day, Easter, Halloween, Christmas, or just at the end of a long work day. We don't need much of an excuse to dive into the stuff. Indeed, the average Brit eats around eight kilograms of chocolate a year. Yeah, that is a lot, but we are not the only ones. The chocolate industry is worth over $100 billion worldwide, and it is still growing year on year. It means that there is no shortage of big corporations that may potentially prove tasty to prospective investors. So today we thought it worth grabbing a hot chocolate, reaching for a box of celebrations and discussing the very big business of confection. During the show we'll be hearing from Angus Thurwell, Chief Executive of luxury chocolate brand Hotel Chocolat, about their business model and operating throughout 2020. But for now, from the Investors Chronicle, I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to Not Your Normal Finance Show. So, I think it's my turn to ask the question this week. Uh, Kit Kat is the world's most popular chocolate bar, selling over 150 million bars a year worldwide. But which of the following flavours can you not find Kit Kat in? So, you've got cucumber Kit Kat, wasabi Kit Kat, tomato Kit Kat, and seafood Kit Kat. Mm. Oh, no. Three of them are real, which is disgusting. One of them is not. Oh... Wasabi and cucumber sound like they might be Asian. So I think those are probably real. Okay. Well, surely not seafood. Seafood, surely that's the wrong one. I would say seafood as well. In we'll the find meantime. out if we click on this link produced, created for us by producer John. Oh, I thought, we, I thought we found out the answer at the end of the show. No, he's changed it this week. Okay. What's the answer? Oh, wow. <laughs> the tomato is made up. The others exist in Japan. Right. And he's also put, how grim does that seafood look? <laughs> you can, I, I need to see this thing. Uh, oh, my it God. It looks grim. It does look absolutely grim. So uh, I, I guess, you know, you're not in the market for, for a tomato Kit Kat or a seafood Kit Kat, but you like a bit of chocolate, don't you, Megan? I do like a bit of chocolate, but, yeah, that seafood one. It's literally, it's got a picture of a fish on the wrapper. I've never heard. I've and never. a lobster. That is hilarious. Um, yes, I do like chocolate. Um, I, um, I'm particularly into a brand of chocolate, a new brand of chocolate at the moment. I mean, I think it's quite new. I don't know. I've just I've only come across it recently called Tony's. And I think it's quite impressive that this new brand of chocolate is, it seems to be doing pretty well in the UK. It's definitely in quite a lot of supermarkets now. You don't see that many new chocolate brands around like bars, no, it, it does seem to be a market that's that's largely cornered by your your confectionery giants, Mars, uh, Nestle, yeah. and I guess there's a couple of others that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but um, Cadbury, Cadbury, yes, of course, Cadbury. <laughs> Who can forget me? Um, yes, yeah, but you know, it, it is a market that seems to be cornered. But you're right. This is this is a new brand, perhaps you know, sort of uh, similar to what we're seeing in lots of other areas of the food market, sort of crafty type of a craft approach to to, to the yeah. product yeah i mean it's not cheap tony's chocolate but um it's very good we have been consuming quite a bit of it in the office uh, i have been consuming quite a bit in the office i've had a little um, bit <laughs> so so you know should big companies be worried about little brands like this i i don't know uh, they did something really clever with social media didn't they recently i remember you telling me about it yeah they i don't know whether it was real or not even but they had brands so they'd taken, like, 
logos of Twix and Mars, and they'd put the Tony's logo within the colours of Twix or Mars or things like that. Their 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 brand is all sustainable and it's sustainable farming, which is obviously a massive deal in in the cocoa industry. And their social media campaign was all about how much Twix costs in carbon emissions and I think potentially use of slavery and stuff like that and how that compares to Tony's which was nothing um and then then they had got the the colors of a Twix on the Tony's logo and it's definitely eye-catching uh I, in the talk it's been reviewed by various people and it's really nice um so yeah I think it's not going to stop stop people buying Twixes and Mars bars and things like that but because it is expensive and it's not the kind of thing that you're just going to have in your cupboard and eat regularly because it's too expensive for that. Tony's very interesting, sort of small company, not one that you can invest in, but lots and lots of big companies out there. It's a very large market, as we know, and, and, and producer John has given us some, some really quite extraordinary stats here. Beyond the uh, eight kilograms, 44,000 calories of chocolate. That is alarming. <laughs> I can't believe how much that is. <laughs> 22 days worth of recommended calorie intake. Well, lucky the gyms are open so everyone can go and burn it off. Um, and what is 80 million Easter eggs sold a year? Uh, yes, which reminds us that we need to address the fact that if you're, you're probably listening to this on Ash Wednesday when many of you may have given up chocolate for the next 40 days. So hopefully this will sustain you for a few, uh, a few weeks until you can dig into your Easter egg. Absolutely. Um, eight of them, if you're a child, apparently. Eight per child. My goodness, wow. what are we doing to our children? Um, so the UK is the seventh largest importer of cocoa beans. Uh, and the chocolate market worldwide is worth $100 billion. I mean, it's, it, it, it is an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily large market. But are these companies worth investing in? Um, and it is a company that, to, to, to generate growth, has to resort to seafood flavour Kit Kats, um, really sort of pushing at the limits of, of how far it can innovate and grow. I think the fact that a company can sell seafood <laughs> flavoured Kit Kats is quite a lot of credit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's extraordinary that this product has, I mean, they're some of the biggest companies in the world. We have a town in the UK which was created just for the production of chocolate, which is going to start being used again for the production of chocolate. Mondelez is bringing Cadbury production back to the UK. And, yeah, it's, it is amazing. They are extraordinarily big companies, some of which literally make all their money from sweets. Mar- Mars is the, is the biggest chocolate manufacturer in the world. It is a, it's not a listed company. It's a private company. It's actually, I think it's the biggest, 18, one of the biggest. 18 billion. Uh, net in sales, sales last year. Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest private companies in America, but that's largely from Mars bars and M&Ms. They do, they make chewing gum as well. It's the company is actually called Mars Wrigley. Um, but yeah, Ferrero, also a private company, um, $13 billion of, of sales last year. Obviously, that includes Nutella, which is a fantastic product. Not really sweet, is it, is it really either? I, I like to, it's good to see Haribo down there, number nine on the list. Three point three billion dollars worth of rubber sweets every year. It's quite quite <laughs> extraordinary. Um, I mean, yeah, one, one of the places. I mean, look at all these names that we've got here. You know, your Lints and 
and uh, and, and Hershey's. And it, it kind of makes me think of airports. And it makes me think of sort of mm. walking through and seeing all this confectionery everywhere, along with all the booze and whatnot. These, have these companies had a good or bad lockdown? Have we? Have they? What they've lost in sort of you know those sort of out out and about sales, snacking and and, and airports duty free. Um, you know, have people been making up for it by by dashing off to the supermarket and stuffing their face in front of Netflix? Well, Mondelez, which is the biggest listed chocolate company, has recently reported um, earnings for 2020, and they did beat their estimates. And they have seen, I mean, quite extraordinary growth in North America, 14% growth from revenue growth for a company which largely makes chocolates is, yeah, quite incredible. So, yeah, it seems like they're not really missing out on on the on the airport consumer. It's, yeah, people have been <laughs> buying a lot for home. Yeah, yeah, we can... I did. We had a bit of Christmas. That was about it. Um, one thing I missed out on this year was, was, was stuff from Hotel Chocolat, which, which I would generally pick up uh, whilst up in town. And they've all been shut. Uh, See, this is something that I found extremely interesting about the Hotel Chocolat uh, numbers. I was so sure that they were going to be really, really badly hit by, by lockdown and the fact that, yeah, it's the kind of... Surely Hotel Chocolat chocolate is the kind of thing that you see... Yeah, on your way out of a shop and you just think, oh, I need to get something else for my granny. And so you pick up a chocolate bar. Um, yeah, stocking fillers, all sorts of little things. But it seems, I always thought that Hotel Chocolat was something that you see and you think, oh, yeah, that looks nice. Rather than I must go out and buy Hotel Chocolat. But apparently that is not the case at all because they had a pretty good, well, a pretty decent year, um, all things considered. And they had a very, very good Christmas. Um which means that people are actually going out and seeking Hotel Chocolat chocolates. I mean, we had loads of Hotel Chocolat. My family had loads of Hotel Chocolat treats given to us and given out for Christmas. Um, my dad is a, I think he's a shareholder, but he's definitely a fan of the company, which may be why people <laughs> tend to give us Hotel Chocolat stuff. But yeah, it's a, it, they have carved out a niche. They seem to have battered away all the rest of the competition. I mean, you don't see Thornton's anymore, um, which is now owned by Ferrero. And in the UK, they are pretty much alone in the high-end chocolate area. They've done an amazing job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess a lot of their sales over Christmas would have come through through the web. I, I presume, mm. like like any good retailers now, they have a they have a kind of very very sort of mixed up uh, go to market offering. Yeah, um, absolutely. <clears throat> um, Perhaps we'll hear uh, about that from their chief executive, Angus Thurwell, uh, who um, producer John spoke to you this week. So, Angus, could you just start by telling us a little bit about Hotel Chocolat, just the history of it, and uh, yeah, just how you got to where you've got? Yes, uh, well, Hotel Chocolat is um, it's 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 a, it's a a brand whose uh, purpose is really to bring happiness through chocolate. And that's what we put all our creativity into and all, um, you know, all the diverse teams we have uh, designing, making, um, actually growing, um, and, and then um, retailing direct to, to our customers, either online through subscription or in uh, kind of leisure orientated physical retail so we're we've we built the, the brand from being a very early online pioneer in um in in the 1990s through um 
being a, a very early subscription business in the in the early 2000s and then the last 10-15 years have really been about transforming Chocolat into a multi-channel model and bringing a, um, a physical dimension to the brand. I wanted to ask about 2020. It's a, a difficult year for everyone, I guess. But um, how did uh, Hotel Chocolat deal with deal with the problems, deal with the uh, stores being shut for most of the last 12 months? Um, yeah, how's that been? So from a pure business point of view, we're, um, we've been in a fortunate position. We uh, had a very um, high performance uh, digital side to the business and we were able to accelerate into the situation and make sure that we uh, could carry on keeping the chocolat flowing into into um, households in the UK and the US and in Japan. Um, so overall in 2020 we uh, we saw uh, we saw growth even though the physical uh, state which previously accounted for up to 65% of the business, 70% of the business uh, was closed for very large tracts of time. We, we were able to um, stay in touch with our very loyal customer base. And thankfully, many of them for the first time decided to use our, use our online facilities and register with us. And, uh, you know, hopefully, we're hoping this can be the beginning of a a lovely online relationship as well as a physical retail relationship. It's going to be interesting to see what sticks for businesses sort of um, touch wood when we come out of the pandemic. Is, is, is that sort of online growth a model you'd like to stick, uh, stick more closely to? We're very much of the view that um, a, you know, multi-channel is the best model for our brand and the nature of what we offer. So, so we don't view it as being, um, you know, a, a kind of zero-sum game that one channel has to be totally dominant, and it's it's either a choice of, you know, running a chain of shops or or, or having, uh, you know, an amazing online offer. That's never been our our, our experience. It's never been our history. We started as a, a pure play, play online business, and then voluntarily and with our eyes open, what in addition to the online um, model physical retail could bring we then started building out our multi-channel offer and enjoy and, and you know this is ongoing and enjoying very fast growth as a consequence of making the, the multi-channel model work so we're, we, we we are doubling down on the investments behind digital that's that's completely um, you know out there and and we've been very clear about that we 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 can see that there's uh, an opportunity to accelerate our plans that we already had for for digital because of this uh this this fundamental shift uh in uh consumer behavior and we we think that some of it will uh rebalance but there's um definitely going to be a very strong um ongoing behavior shift and we're conscious that as a brand, we can be of service to a household in many different ways. One of those ways is very conveniently, um, uh, if you like, delivered by having a, a, a nearby physical hotel chocolat that you can just pop into on your way walking down the high street or uh, your way out of a, a big city in a train station. And, you know, we love that dimension. 
the, the other ways that Hatshokla can be of service include um, acting as your ambassador to deliver a gift to another set of people, another household on your behalf. That, that's always being part of a model and we're very good at it. Then we can also be a frictionless subscription um, um, supply route into the home. Uh, and that's increasingly important for, for example, our velvetizer in-home hot chocolate making machine where you know you, you've you've got your gorgeous copper velvetizer on when you're out in your kitchen top and you just want a supply of our velvetizer chocolate flakes just coming into the household without even having to think about it and and so when you add all that up we we certainly know that there's um, been an acceleration in many dimensions of that that depend on online and that's not going to go away anytime soon um, the, the other thing is we know that our database of um, direct customers has increased uh, very markedly over the period in in the UK in America and in Japan and again that is the very foundation of future growth for a direct business which is effectively what we are. I was interested to, to learn that you own your own uh, cacao plantation uh, down in St Lucia um, seems uh seems very picturesque based on uh based on the google images but um yeah that's that's quite an interesting and unusual thing um for a company to have i think you're unique in in that aspect um can you speak about that that supply line how much does that um does that plantation feed you know feed the feed the business and uh can you give us sort of a behind the scenes look at roots to wrapper i guess no certainly i mean the um it's of pivotal importance to uh, to the business model overall, and that's at um, three different levels. The first one is uh, the most kind of superficial and 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 the most minor role that it plays, which is the supply of amazing um, origin uh, cacao that has a very particular and award winning flavour, and and that's enabling us to stand out in the highly competitive uh, chocolate arena of say Tokyo. You know we we've got. A taste that no other, you know, French, Swiss, Belgian, um, or um, you know, or any other um, uh, brand has got, and that certainly gets us noticed. So we're able to play in that really super premium arena. The second thing is it makes us um, able to look at the world uh, of of chocolate in a in a very in a very different way because we're able to marshal all the knowledge that we've acquired by actually getting off. Of, of fingers in the dirt and, and, and growing the cocoa from seedlings and um, knowing um, everything about, about the cocoa as a, as a kind of super plant. It's, it's just the most fertile way for us to uh, develop the brand and think of new ideas. And, and I mean, a, a quick example, we didn't want to waste any single part of the cocoa beans that we grow in St. Lucia. So we started using the normally discarded um, husk on the outside of the bean to distill into gin we now have a multi-million uh, pound uh, you know gin business with a, a very distinctive uh, cocoa edge that's best served with a twist of orange and, and again that's 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 a key part of what sets us apart as a brand when we're pitching to the most uh, discerning uh, you know landlords in tokyo they you know they love that and and that's borne out by by um, the, the way the uh, Japanese consumers are behaving as well. Then finally, the third element is really all about the um, sustainability of cocoa. And we we very much view 
our Rabo uh, estate and, and, and cocoa farm as being um, the thought leader in our business and increasingly in the outside world of how, how cocoa growing can be truly sustainable economically, um, socially, and um, environmentally. And, and so we, we really shouldn't be in a position of uh, lecturing other people on how to do their cocoa unless we know ourselves. And having that model farm where we pioneer um, new techniques, make all the mistakes on our own bill, and then only take the best ideas forward is how we want to operate. And so although uh, Rabo only accounts for a very small percentage of the cocoa that we, uh, we use in Huta Chocolat, the, the influence of it is massive, and particularly in the sustainability arena and knowing how to, um, for example, encourage our farmers in Ghana to, to grow cocoa gently, uh, gently for the earth, gently in terms of working with, with, with other humans and rewarding um, that, that, that type of approach uh, where we're, we're, we don't actually own the factors of production. We don't own cocoa farms in Ghana but we're, you know, we're the partner, we're the buyer, the long-term partner, and, and, and having that, that joined-up, knowledgeable approach based on being another grower means we can, we can evolve to a, you know, a much better uh, sustainability situation with, with, with cocoa and the way it relates to the luxury end where all the margin is. And it's our, our brand mandate to join the, wor the worlds of you know, agri-cocoa with the worlds of luxury chocolate to everybody's benefit it really should be to everybody's benefit and just finally angus looking forward uh to the rest of 2021 you must be praying that lockdown restrictions lift uh as soon as possible um uh, are any stores under threat um going forward of, of permanent closure if lockdown restrictions cannot be uh cannot be removed um, not not be, not because of uh, COVID restrictions. We're not going to we we're not going to knee jerk into anything. We 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 haven't made any redundancies. In fact, we've been hiring all the way through the pandemic because we've been in growth, and we very much take a long term approach to the partnerships we have with property, as with any other um, of the stakeholders in the Hutter Chocolate ecosystem. So uh, there's no doubt that things have changed, particularly in in the UK and America with regards to the um, physical property scene and we uh, we have short leases we have lots of break options coming up and we have plenty of opportunities to sit around um, and have a hot chocolate with our you know property owner partners and, and work out together how do we how do we get through this how do we how do we continue working together for the next you know decade or so and um, and, and kind of share the pain between us Thankfully, most of the landlords that we work with are completely in, in the same mindset. And, you know, we're, we're, we've got no plans to do anything draconian, but clearly we've got to do the right thing with the resources of the company. And, and you know, it's all about the return on capital that we can, we, can, we can make. So if a particular location is just not going to work and the, and the landlord is not going to make, you know, zero effort to try and, uh, you know, work with us, then, you know, if we have an opportunity to elegantly uh, repurpose that investment into uh, more digital marketing, we'd be crazy not to have a take a close look at that. Great, Angus, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm going to go have a hot chocolate because you've put that in my head. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, thanks again. Thanks very much. 
John, nice to chat. Thank you very much. Um, so we've heard how they coped during the pandemic. I know they, they raised a bit of money at the beginning and obviously, like many companies, have, uh, have had to, uh, to kind of rein in dividends for a while. But, um, but you know, it's a strong company and uh, no doubt we'll see them bouncing back. Um, we talked briefly about the pandemic and how the sector's coped. Um, let's, let's come back to that. I mean, you know, a bit of comfort eating, I think, at home. What's this lipstick effect that, uh, that I hear about? That <laughs> I mean, I, I can't Customers get it. spending more on cheap treats during tough economic times. What, why is that a lipstick effect? Uh, because lipstick's cheap. And uh, so you buy something cheap that makes you feel better because it's all you can afford, but it makes you feel better. Right. Like chocolate. So, so yeah. I mean, do you know what? I don't. I don't actually think that's the case here. I think. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people are necessarily financially afflicted at the moment. What with furlough mm-hmm. payments and, and obviously people being able to work from home. Um, so I'm not sure that is the case here. I don't think we have yet hit those tough economic times across the board. Maybe we they will. might be to come though. Maybe it's to come. Uh, maybe it's to come. Um, I mean, what, what are some of the risks and rewards of this sector? I mean, you know, that's that's one of them. But, but, but what else is there? I mean, the underlying commodity price, for example? I don't really know how volatile the cocoa price is. I mean, I assume it is driven by demand for chocolate. I don't really know what cocoa is used for apart from... No, it is pretty um, much only chocolate. Um <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a it's a strange commodity. Uh, it's not grown in it's not grown in very many places. Um, there's a couple of places in Africa. I think Cote d'Ivoire being one of them, and, and maybe somewhere in, in, in South America as well. But yeah, it's not it's not grown very widely. Therefore, a bad crop can affect the price. Um, I remember I remember a few years ago there was there was a, a famous instance of a hedge fund manager who managed to corner the entire cocoa market. How many, he bought 148,000 tons of, of cocoa, five percent of global supply. Uh, Whoa. And they called him Chock Finger. Um, but, but yeah, that was, I mean, that's the only time I can remember Coco ever becoming a headline story. But it is an underlying commodity and it is a, it is a risk for, for, for these companies. It's something they have to manage. But that's... And I assume when supply chains get disrupted like they do during a pandemic, getting your supply of cocoa to your factory in whatever country it is that the actual manufacturing happens hasn't been the easiest thing to manage. Um, but then companies do seem to have managed to deal with that for now if they're reporting the kind of numbers like Mondelez is reporting. Indeed, and they've obviously had, they've no doubt faced issues keeping their factories open. Um, mm. You know, obviously a lot of, we know that, that every company that's had to do that has had expenses to bear, cost to bear in doing that. So yeah, good revenue growth, but you, you know, you'd, you'd want to have a look at the profit line to see the actual costs of, of keeping business going there. However... I mean, this sector, I know, um, you know, it, it feels like one of those sort of defensive sectors, those 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 kind of purchases that, that people will never really give up. Um, and I know you're a big fan of one company in particular. I mean, what, what's your view on the sector? Um, what's, your, what's your pick? I do like Nestle. I think Nestle is a is a very good company. I think it's a uh, it's a well diversified company. They have so many brands not just Kit Kat and Roundtree's and um and the obvious Nestle brands they make a huge amount of money from water um and also from coffee um Nescafe coffee is uh is a big 
massive contributor to their revenues. They have recently, relatively recently, although time is behaving strange at the moment, so actually may not have been recently at all, signed a deal with Starbucks, which they, so they're now supplying Nescafe coffee to Starbucks. And as part of Starbucks trying to reach new people, less people who actually come into the store, more people who are just picking up a Starbucks to go. Nestle and Nescafe are part of that movement. So they are not just reliant on chocolate. They do still make quite a lot of money from chocolate, but they are not particularly keen on their chocolate business at the moment. They have been trying to sell parts of their sweets business in America, clearly sensing a shift maybe in people's um, priorities. They are they're chasing a lot of the vegan trends and the health food trends. I mean, they've sold their cooked meats business. I mean, people don't really want to buy salami in massive quantities anymore. And they want to buy vegan burgers instead. Um, so... Yeah, they are trying to stay ahead of trends, which is interesting in the fact that they are less keen, especially in America, on chocolate. Although the Americans aren't that keen on other Western chocolate anyway. They love their Hershey's and their stuff like that stuff, which doesn't sell very well in Europe. Um, So, yeah, it's they Nestle is a very, very interesting business. And I think because they're diversified, more diversified than something like Mondelez is, they are a good pick. I mean... There's also another company, another listed company in the sector, which is Lint Sprungley is, I mean, who doesn't love Lint? But they are so exposed to high end chocolate making and uh, and being able to sell chocolate rabbits at Easter and chocolate reindeer at Christmas. And the chocolate's obviously amazing, but it's uh, it's quite a difficult area to generate huge growth from. Um, do, do, do you think, I mean, you mentioned um, in respect of Nestle, them, them kind of focusing on, on sort of uh, wellness trends, health, healthy eating trends. Is this, is this a you know, sort of genuine risk to the broader sector? I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, you, like, you, you keep fit, but you like chocolate too. And yeah, they, don't, exactly. they don't seem to be I mean, mutually exclusive. You can like both. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I do, I do think it's crazy to think that just because societies are trying to get healthier, chocolate is going to take a hit because I don't think it will. I think it's more like fast food is going to take the first hit because that's significantly less healthy than than chocolate is. Mm. You haven't seen the I que- don't know. The queues at Harlow McDonald's drive through recently. I think, I think that's not true either. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this health, healthy, 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 stuff i mean it does seem to be quite targeted to certain people it's definitely not everyone who's trying to get healthy so i don't know i don't think we're going to stop eating chocolate en masse in the uk or in america or elsewhere in europe um no but it's probably something to be aware of in terms of the kind of growth that if mondelez is generating 14 percent growth in North America in a year is that something that's going to be sustainable beyond a strange year like 2020 probably not mm. um I mean talking of sustainable we've already touched on it but you know sustainability must be a huge huge concern for, for companies like this I mean they are out farming moving commodities around um you know as you say there are big supply chains behind all this um they're farming in sometimes some not very nice places um you know, ESG is massive. This this must be something that, that these companies must be particularly mindful of. 
yeah I mean I think it's an interesting one I think maybe people don't you don't think of chocolate as not ticking the boxes for ESG but yeah it, in some cases it probably does the fact that a company like Tony's is trying to carve out a niche by being so sustainable and calling out companies which aren't sustainable exactly. as well um the yeah attention is definitely there's pressure building on the companies which aren't being sustainable just because that is something that has is long overdue um so yeah if sustainability means margins are going to be eroded slightly because people need to take a little bit more care then um then yeah it might might be a little bit of a problem definitely something to watch out for who would have thought there was so much to say about a simple bar of chocolate We had uh, a question this week uh, from Paul in Leicester, um, which I'm going to fire at you uh, again, Megan. So here's the question. Brexit has been overshadowed by coronavirus in the news, but it seems like in nearly two months it hasn't caused major havoc for businesses so far. What impact are we seeing and what do we expect from Brexit as the months and years continue? Well, I'm not sure about the (laughs) havoc thing. I think think maybe... The reason why it hasn't doesn't seem to have caused too much havoc is because the media has something which is capturing more eyeballs right now, right now, which is coronavirus and the right of the vaccine. Um, I do think businesses are struggling, um, especially small businesses with the impact of Brexit. I think the, the actual, OK, yeah, we've signed a deal, a deal which seems to focus extremely heavily on fishing rights and not a lot on very much else. And small businesses in particular are really, really struggling because of the uncertainty, because they don't actually know still, even though it is two months on, exactly how trade with Europe is supposed to work going forward. And there have been delays um, at ports and there have certainly been issues in terms. I mean, the travel thing isn't a problem right now because people can't travel. But when holidays start up again and cruises start up again and the ski season starts up again, these companies which rely on British staff, that's going to be a real problem. <laughs> and the same goes for the other the other way around. Companies which rely on people from Europe, I mean, especially in industries like the uh, the arts and science, which rely on huge numbers of people from European universities and European museums and areas of culture, it's not going to be so easy for people to get jobs either way. Um, So, yes, I do think there are massive impacts on business which we haven't seen yet because there is a bigger problem which they're currently dealing with. But once that problem blows over, which it will, I think the impact of Brexit is going to be seen. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Th- those two problems did collide quite recently um, when uh, there was a spat between the European Union and AstraZeneca over vaccine supplies. Um, I mean, I, I guess from my perspective, I looked at that and just thought, uh, well, here we go. This is this is kind of going to be the, the sort of pattern of things to come for, for, for years. Um, where, where there is any sort of ambiguity uh, or, or sort of national interest... Um, there is potential problems. That's where I think, you know, I think the Astra EU um, spat really highlighted the risks there. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. you follow that sector even more closely than, than I do. I mean, what did you make of it all? I think the EU made a serious blunder in in doing that. And I think that's another reason why the perception is that Brexit isn't causing too much of a problem right now, because what we were three weeks in, 
and the EU behaved like that, it was ridiculous. They have not covered covered themselves in glory by trying to lay down, I think it was Article 16 or something like that, which was the the island, the border in Northern Ireland. So having fought for months to try and ensure that there was no hard border in Northern Ireland, the EU were the first to try and lay down that hard border in Northern Ireland. And that that hasn't pleased anybody. And I, yeah, I do think it was a bit of a backs up against the wall kind of situation and they were really digging their heels in. They, they have mucked up their vaccine rollout badly. And one of the reasons why that vaccine rollout has been so bad is because a trading block the size of the EU is always going to struggle with with a rollout as rapidly as a small country like the UK is with one language and one national health system. And it was always going to be so much easier for the UK to do something like that. I mean, look how easily in comparison Israel has managed its vaccine rollout. They, they're they a really, I mean, they're a small, they're a small country, yeah, a very tight healthcare system, which is led by a few people, a handful of people. So it's easier to do. And it was never going to be easy for the EU to get its vaccine rollout right. Mm. In trying to get its vaccine rollout on track, they tried to make some demands of a British company, which were obviously then blown up by the media because that was great press for anyone who was very, very pro-Brexit. And it did prove why it was probably a good decision to leave a trading block, which is having massive communication difficulties um, and financial difficulties. But, but yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily a precedent for, for trading to continue. I think, yeah, the EU is probably going to be a little bit protectionist in some of it going forward, especially now this has happened. Um, but I don't know. I think the small UK businesses are still going to be the ones that, bear the real brunt of of this unfortunately until things are smoothed out mm, absolutely and and small businesses are the ones that have also largely borne the brunt of, of coronavirus as well they are the ones that have had to shut they are the ones that can't access financing as easily as large companies um yeah on the, on that subject i mean you know uk small companies have have you know privately owned you know owner managed companies will struggle with all of this but but the UK market's doing really well and seems to be coming back into fashion. You know, the lifting of that sort of Brexit um, shadow uh, has, has, kind of, has kind of done wonders for the UK market. I mean... I is it it's, the Brexit shadow lifting or is it the vaccine rollout? Surely it's, surely it's a combination of, of the two. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the attention around the vaccine rollout and the fact that we are going to be the first nation to vaccinate ourselves out of lockdown... That is, of course, that's extremely um, positive. The uh, pound is at the highest level against both the euro and the dollar than it has been for several years today. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of positive sentiment around um, around the UK business, which is ironic considering being less than a week since we had news of a 10% fall in the UK economy, which is pretty atrocious and had that news come out this time last year, I think everyone would have been quite terrified. I think it's premature to say that the UK economy is ready to start firing again. I don't think the fallout from what lockdown has done, not just to the economy, but people's willingness to work, people's willingness to be productive is yet to be felt. Mm. No, I tend to agree. Um, I would tend to agree. Uh, In fact, I 
almost completely agree. And uh, but I do think Brexit is, is still there, lurking in the background as well. Um, the markets are very much in risk on mode at the moment, so so we can ignore mm. we can ignore all this stuff. We can ignore all this yeah. stuff. Just ignore it. Paul from Leicester, just ignore it. <laughs> don't, <laughs> I sig- mean, don't ignore it. But then I, it is almost, and this is a question that I put to Cars and Block um, when I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. What on earth can the rational investor do in this kind of situation? Because if you're looking at the markets right now and you're thinking as a as an investor who has like keeps value in their mind or keeps up valuations somewhere in their mind and as you should do and thinks logically about what has happened in the last year and whether that reflects what's happening in the markets no it doesn't reflect it at all the markets are behaving with absolute madness but if you think that to yourself you're missing out it's it's crazy it's absolutely crazy so yes don't ignore it but also ignore it because (laughs) There's no, there's no right answer. There is absolutely no right answer at the moment. Um, eat some chocolate. Eat some Enjoy chocolate. yourself. Absolutely. The wonderful grey areas of investing, where there is no <laughs> such thing as a wrong or right answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely eat some chocolate. Anyway, thank you, Megan. It's been uh, been great chatting, as always. Um, that's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. But do remember uh, to keep sending in your questions to icpods at ft.com. Uh, or reach out to us on social media. Uh, We'll be back next week to discuss all things cars. Thanks for listening. See you all next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.